friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. Now we're back to our series on the book of James, chapter 5, and let's all rise from our seats. Let's take a look right now at James, chapter 5, and verses 1 to 6, and we will read together aloud at the count of three. So here we go. One, two, three. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you, O God. This is the day that you have made, and we thank you that you reminded us about our redemption. We thank you that you ransomed us through your priceless blood. And because of that, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to you. And so let this day be in honor of you. Let every fiber of our being be dedicated in the worship of who you are. And Father, allow us, Lord, to pay careful attention to your word. May we honor you and may we worship you as we listen to your word. Lord, I pray for myself that you might equip and empower me for the sake of your people. I pray, O Lord, that your grace might be upon each and every one of us. Lord, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this uh, morning sermon, The Poor Rich. And I think the message today is quite timely, most especially in view of the fact that two high-profile names or two high-profile people have just recently committed suicide. One is Anthony Bourdain. He is well-known as a chef. He is also well-known as a great storyteller. In fact, he came here to the Philippines one time, and if you recall, he was promoting our very own dish the adobo. And he was saying that the Filipino dishes have the potential of becoming popular the world over. And so many people, many Filipinos and many people all over the world were actually shocked that he took his life in a hotel uh, somewhere in France. But he was not the only casualty this week. There was another one who committed suicide. Her name is Kate Spade. Of course, some of you might know her because she is a well-known designer. She designs bags, and of course, she is a well-known figure. 
But at the same time, she fell into depression and she also committed suicide. And I think God is speaking to us through these events that have taken place. And basically, I think the statement that God is making and the statement that these people have made as a result of their suicides is that money does not really satisfy. And so if you and I are seeking for more resources simply so that we could be happy and satisfied and fulfilled, let me tell you, these people reached the pinnacle of success. They reached the pinnacle of having all these accumulated resources. And yet, it was not enough to dry away that, or drive away rather, that depression in their hearts. And again, that basically tells us that we cannot worship money. We cannot put money as an idol in our hearts. Unfortunately, there are some people who have made money their own gods. In view of these events, I feel that the message is really timely and really appropriate. I'd like to be able to say of the bat that there are two kinds of rich people. One I call the rich rich. Obviously, there's a little wordplay here, and I'll explain what that means. And then you have the poor rich. Now, the rich rich are those who recognize the hand of God. They understand that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So they understand that whatever blessings they have comes from the hand of God. They acknowledge that, and they know that they are merely stewards of the manifold grace of God. Likewise, when it comes to their financial dealings, they are righteous. They are honest people. They are people of integrity. Now, such people God will bless. He will bless them in practically every aspect of their lives. In contrast, however, those whom I call the poor rich are those who have acquired resources and money, not as a result of righteousness, but as a result of their unrighteous dealings with people. And because of this, the Bible says that their lives will become miserable. And so what we will be studying today would be the pitfalls of the poor rich. And my desire, of course, that is that you and I might become the rich rich that the Bible speaks about. So let me just share to you three points this morning. Actually, we will not be able to handle everything. There is actually so much to discuss in this particular passage, and I don't want to just hasten the teaching on this particular passage. So just for today, we will be talking about two major points, but I will have to show you everything on the screen as well. So the first point deals with the coming miseries of the rich, and this is found in verse 1. I'd like to say, first of all, God has nothing against rich people, and I'm going to share to you about a specific rich that God is against, but I don't want to go ahead of that. Anyway, point number two is the losses of the rich, which we will find in verses 2 to 3. And we have a double whammy here in verses 2 to 3. We're going to talk about their temporal loss. And then in verse 3, we're going to talk about their eternal loss. And under that, 
the timing of this eternal loss. The third and final point, which we will discuss next weekend, talks about the sins of this rich people. And this is found in verses 4 to 6. One of the bad things that they do is they withhold the pay of the laborers. And this is found in verse 4. And then in verse 5, they live only for themselves, for their pleasures, for their own satisfaction. They indulge themselves. And they have no thoughts about God. They have no thoughts about other people. The third and final point is their oppression of the righteous poor, which is found in verse 6. We're going to reserve that topic for next weekend. So let's go straight right now on the coming mysteries of the rich, and this is found in verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Once again, let me just state, God is not against the rich. If we take a look at the Bible, there are so many people whom God empowered to become wealthy, one of which was Abraham. Of course, he was the original patriarch. And then you have Jacob, and then you have Isaac. They were all prospered by the Lord. David himself was likewise prospered by God. Solomon was the richest king in the Middle East and maybe all over the world at that time. And so it was God who empowered them to become wealthy. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says it is God who gives us the power to become wealthy. So understand this. When people are rich, those riches did not really emanate from themselves. Those riches actually came from God. So God is not against riches per se. But here, God is talking about a specific kind of rich people that He has become an adversary. And who are they? Well, first of all, they are people who have withheld the pay of their labors. There are people who are employed under them, and they have somehow withheld it. And because of this, God considers that unrighteousness. Their second sin is the fact that they live selfishly. They live only for wanton pleasure. Their only desire is to satisfy themselves. And so they indulge themselves. They buy themselves many things, and they try to enjoy them. As I mentioned to you, they have no thoughts of God. They have no thoughts of other people. There is no charity in their hearts. There is no compassion in their hearts. It's all about I, me, myself. It's all about selfishness. It's all about self-centeredness, all right? So really, their God is money and themselves. And the third thing that they commit against God is they are people who step on powerless people. And God doesn't like that. He is the champion of the oppressed. He is the champion of the widows. He is the champion of the orphans. He is the champion of poor people. This is who our God is. And that's why sometimes in order for us to behave correctly, we have to understand who our God is. Because who our God is is a reflection 
of what you and I should be doing and how you and I should be responding to certain circumstances. Now, for this sinfully rich people, their riches will actually turn out to be a curse. The Bible says they will weep and they will howl. Now, why will they weep and howl? Because of the miseries that will come upon them. And God is guaranteeing that these things will actually take place in their lives. So they cannot have a false sense of security. Unfortunately, when people have a fat bank account, when they have resources, when they have corporations, when they have many businesses, they have this false sense of security. And friends, let me just tell you, there are no guarantees in this life. There are no guarantees that what you have accumulated will actually linger and remain with you. God can take them away in a snap. And one of the powerful lessons we discover is found in the book of Job, wherein Job actually lost everything in one day's time. Now, that is not to say that Job was unrighteous. But, tell, but that somehow tells us that we cannot put our trust in our riches. And unfortunately, these people that James was describing were putting their trust in their own riches. And God is saying they will weep and they will, they will howl. Now, the word weep in the Greek is quite interesting because literally it is used for wailing for the dead or weeping for shame or remorse. Again, it's wailing for the dead or weeping for shame or remorse. And you and I know how painful it is to lose a loved one. Sometimes it takes you years to recover, sometimes several months for you to recover. And this is the kind of weeping that is spoken of in the Scriptures. Now, you do not want to be in that place. You do not want to be weeping for all these mysteries that will come upon you. Then the next word we discover here is the word how, which again in the Greek is quite interesting because it is used of an intensified, violent grief. Intensified, violent grief. Now, this is the kind of grief that comes upon you wherein you are totally overwhelmed, when you feel, wherein you feel totally devastated because of what happens to you. Again, you do not want to be in that place. And what we see here actually is the poetic justice of God. In the end, it is the innocent righteous who will have the last laugh. And for these people, unfortunately, they will enter into a world of misery, a world of weeping, a world of remorse, a world of intensified violent grief. Let me share to you a little story. There was a man who entered the business world, and he was hardworking. When he started, he only had a handful of change, but he was a very determined person. He was a strong-willed person. And as a result of his hard work, he was able to gain a lot of money. He became very wealthy. And so he was honored in his community because he was probably the most successful 
and the richest man in his community. He was likewise honored publicly for donating a beautiful park to his town as well as an organ to his church. But you see, this man was unscrupulous in his dealings. He was unrighteous in his dealings. He was dishonest. And people working under him knew exactly what he was made of, that he was a dishonest person. And as a result of that, he actually had very few friends. He had friends because he had money, but very few of them were actually genuine. Then here's the bummer. He ends up in a hospital because of terminal illness. So you could just imagine the gigantic expenses that he had to spend just to find a cure for himself, which actually did not generate much hope because, again, as I mentioned, it was terminal illness. And you know, one of the sad things that happened to him, very few people actually visited him. So if you think about it, there were three forms of misery that he experienced. He had no real friends. He had terminal illness. He had giant expenses. And what does that tell us? We cannot escape the principles of God. In the book of Galatians, we are told, whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. So if we sow bad things, we will reap bad things as well. If we sow good things in our lives, then we will reap good things as well. We will reap a harvest of good things. And this is where we want to be. We want to reap a harvest of good things. And so we need to be mindful of our God that He is watching over us 24-7. There is never actually a time wherein we are able to escape the presence of God. He's always there. He's always observing us. He's always watching us. In fact, He knows the inner thoughts, the inner motives of our hearts. That's how much knowledge God has. And so if we do a bad thing, that does not escape the notice of God. God knows that, and He will remember that. And there will be a day of reckoning. Because whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. And that's why what we need to be doing in our lives is we need to be planting good things continually. And if ever God blesses us, let us use that as a leverage for God to bless us as we seek to bless God and bless other people. You know, what's quite interesting in this translation is that the mysteries here are plural. And the New American Standard Bible, which I am using, of course, this is my regular Bible, is correct in its translation because in the Greek, if you take a look at the Greek, it is really plural. So it should never be translated as misery. It should really be translated as miseries. So what does that tell you? We're not talking here about a one-time tragedy. We're not talking here about a one-time misfortune. We're talking about a series of tragedies. We're talking about a series of miserable situations. That is what we are talking about. So let us not imagine that, you know, we will just suffer for a time and then we can go on with the rest of our lives. No, friends, 
God will make sure that you will end up with a plurality of miseries. Once again, we do not want to be in that place. Now, some of us would probably say, well, I'm excused because I'm not really a wealthy person. And again, let me just remind you, wealth and riches is not necessarily being a millionaire. It's not necessarily being a billionaire because a lot of times when you think about rich, it is those who are millionaires and billionaires. Actually, if you take a look at the Scriptures, the Bible says that those who are rich are those who have more than what they need. So let me just tell you this. If you have a savings account, listen well, you are considered rich. All right? Now, how many here have a savings account? Raise your hands. Oh, there are many liars in this place. How many have a savings account? Raise your hands, please. All right, there you go. So, based on what the Bible is saying, we're all rich here. Everybody has a savings account, and so definitely we are the rich that the Bible speaks about. So don't say, I'm excused. Don't say, you know, this does not concern me. No, this concerns you. If you have more than what you need, then you are considered rich in the Bible. And that's why this particular passage addresses you and I, and we have to pay attention because this is relevant in our lives. And in verses 2 to 3, we find the losses of these rich people. First of all, let's go to the temporal loss as we find it in verses 2 and 3. So here it, it says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. What the Bible is saying is what they have saved up, they will eventually lose. And this is the common experience of all. Sometimes rich people uh, lose because why? Sometimes uh, their, their, their business ends in bankruptcy. Sometimes they get kidnapped. Sometimes they enter into a bad investment. Or at other times, they just simply get sick. And they have these gigantic losses. They have to pay up hospital bills. And friends, let me tell you this. Even if at the end of your life, you still have your money intact, you will still die. And so you cannot actually bring anything into the next life. You cannot bring all your resources, all your fat bank accounts you cannot bring them to heaven. You cannot bring your passbook to heaven. And think about this. When you get to be in heaven, what is it that you have to show to God? Do you show God your passbooks? Do you show God your accumulated wealth? Is that what we will show to God in heaven? Because as far as God is concerned, that's not wealth. That's not riches. For God, wealth and riches is being faithful to Him. Wealth and riches is being devoted to Him. Wealth and riches is being faithful to His calling. Wealth and riches is being obedient to God. That is what He would consider as riches and wealth in the next life. 
Now the question I have for you is if we have invested much in the other life or in the next life. Because a lot of times we invest so much in this life because this life is the life that we see. It is the life that we touch. It is the life that we hear. It is the life that we handle. Failing to recognize that there is an invisible kingdom out there and that invisible kingdom is waiting for us. That invisible kingdom is waiting to receive the sons and the daughters of God. And that is who you and I are if we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. So here's the question. What do we have to show to our God when we enter the portals of heaven? When we enter the gates of heaven, what do we have to show? And friends, think about this. Even what we have in this life, if we have gained them unrighteously, we will lose them. So the story here we find in verses 2 to 3 is not a rags-to-riches story, but rather a riches-to-rags story. It's actually the reverse. And let me just share to you a little story which talks about the fleeting value of money. There was one newspaper account that underscores the fleeting value of riches and the ultimate crash of all temporal investments. It told of a retiree from New Jersey who had moved south with his lifetime savings of $11,300. Now, that's a lot, of course, most especially for a Filipino. But here's the problem. When he went to deposit the money in a Florida bank, the envelope in which he had placed the money was missing. So he did a thorough search of his new home, and he failed to uncover the money. Then he remembered putting some trash or putting out some trash that morning. By the time he realized what had happened, the envelope was buried under 50 truckloads of garbage that was being bulldozed into a huge pit at the country dump. He knew he had no chance of recovering his money. Neighbors and friends reported that they found the poor man in a state of total dejection. And this is really just an illustration that in as much as we would want to put our trust in our riches, there is really no guarantee we will have them all the time. As I mentioned to you, we can lose it through so many factors, through bad investment, through kidnapping, through death, through illness. We can lose a lot of money. So friends, where should we put our trust? We should put our trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Now, there's something I'd like you to observe, and this is where Bible meditation is very important because a lot of times when we read Scripture, we read it quickly. But you know what happens when you read the Bible quickly? You miss out on details. So let's go back to verses 2 and 3 right now. I'd like you to read it, and I'd like you to read it very slowly and meditating on the truths of it. So, here's what verses 2 and 3 says. It says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments 
have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, let me ask you this question. Did you observe anything peculiar with this particular passage? Maybe I'll give you a clue. Let's do a little English lesson. When you take a look at that passage, is it past tense? Is it present tense? Is it future tense? You're mumbling. Let me hear it. Let me hear it. Past tense. Very good. The people here in front are smart. The people at the back, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure you know it's in past tense. But isn't this supposedly something that will happen in the future? Because remember, the beginning verse says, your coming miseries. So it is supposed to be in the future, and yet what is quite interesting, this is written in the past tense. This is what Bible scholars call a prophetic perfect. Say this with me, prophetic perfect. Say it out loud again, prophetic perfect. What does it mean? What it means is this, in the mind of God, it has already happened. Let me say it again. In the mind of God, it has already happened. In other words, as far as God is concerned, this is not a maybe. This is not a potential thing or a possibility that might happen in your life. This is talking about certainty. This is going to actually happen. And in the mind of God, it's a done deal. And that's why this tells us basically we cannot escape the mind and the heart of God. We cannot escape the fact that our God is omniscient. What does omniscience mean? It means God knows everything. But not only that, this passage of Scripture tells us that God is omnipotent, that nothing with Him is impossible, that He can do exactly as He desires to do, and we have absolutely no power to stop God. If He wants to do it, it will happen. And God is saying here, this is His will. This is His perfect will. That when we disobey God, when we are oppressive, when we are living selfishly, when we are living merely for wanton pleasure, when we are oppressing other people, when we are unrighteous in our dealings, it's going to happen to us that there will be coming miseries that will actually take place and we will weep and we will howl. Obviously, we don't want that happening. But it gets worse. If you think temporal loss is such a big deal, Think about the fact that in verse 3, it talks about our eternal loss. Let's read verse 3. It says, And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. The loss, the rust, the Bible is saying, is evidence. It is a testimony of the justice of God. 
It is also a witness and a testimony that you have done wrong. That is what this passage is really trying to say. And worse than that, it says, it will consume your flesh like fire. So, this is speaking loudly that these peculiar rich people were people of injustice. This loss will eventually ruin their lives, not only in this life, but for the rest of eternity. What is quite interesting here is the Greek here speaks of individual, personalized, customized punishment. Could you say this with me? Individual. You're not so happy this morning, are you? Say individual. Personalized. Customized. Kind of punishment. So Diathis remarks, this individual attention of God for man is indeed one of life's greatest mysteries. He saved people individually. He rewards them individually, and He punishes them individually. I say this to people, you know, when God blesses you, when you receive the favor of God, don't you feel as if you are the favorite son or the favorite daughter of God? Amen? That's how it feels sometimes. And sometimes we are in awe. It's, it's really a mind-blowing thing when God just gifts you or blesses you with something that sometimes you did not even pray about. You did not even ask for intercession about it. It was just a wish in your heart. And yet, because God is generous, because God is gracious, He just gives it to you. And you know, it's no coincidence. You know this is the, the, the hand of God upon your life. You know God is being generous and loving and compassionate to you. And so you're blown away by that, and you just prostrate yourself before the Lord, and you worship Him. And you declare His glory. In the same manner, however, that you feel like a favorite son and daughter of God when you disobey Him and God punishes you, it is just as if the eyes of God are just trained on you. And you know those eyes are piercing eyes. And that's why you feel this great misery. As I mentioned to you, more than that, look at what the timing says here. It is in the last days, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, for the past two weekends, we've been talking about biblical prophecy. So, allow me to just give you a little review because this is connected with what we have been talking about the past uh, two Sundays. So, here's the timeline. We are right now in the dispensation of the church. The church will not last forever. By that, I mean the church will not continue to exist here on earth forever. We will be raptured. That's what the Bible says. And what is the rapture? In the twinkling of an eye, we shall be caught up in the clouds with the Lord Jesus Christ to live with Him for the rest of eternity. All right? Now, right after the rapture comes what we call as the tribulation period. The Bible speaks about that. 
It is a seven-year period when the, wherein the Antichrist will rule and reign. The last three and a half years would be very difficult times because the Antichrist will rule the whole world. He will oppress the whole world. You will not be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast on your forehead and on your hand. And therefore, life would be, would be very, very difficult. That will not last forever, however, because the second coming takes place. When the second coming takes place, what will Jesus do? Well, he will cleanse the whole world. And beginning at that time when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem, there will be righteousness, there will be prosperity, we will have a perfect government, all right? We will have a one-world religion. There will be no longer any other isms in the world. There will only be one religion, and that would be true and genuine Christianity. Nobody will talk about any other God except Jesus Christ. That's why every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. How long will that rule of Christ continue? 1,000 years. Why 1,000 years? Because God will test mankind once again. The tribulation saints who will enter the millennium will have children. The children are not born again. And so it is only their parents who came from the tribulation period who are born again, but their children are not necessarily believers. Meaning to say, in that 1,000 years, they also have to accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Some will feign or fake obedience. They will profess to know Christ, but the real score will be discovered after 1,000 years. Because after 1,000 years, Satan, who had been chained at the beginning of the second coming, would be released once again, and he will deceive the whole world, and there will be a final rebellion. That will be the last and final rebellion of the world. Obviously, Christ will wipe them out, and we will now live on for the rest of eternity. But between that time, between the 1,000 years and eternity, you have what is called as the great white throne judgment. Say this with me, great white throne judgment. Say it again, great white throne judgment. Now, this is really heavy stuff, so you need to pay attention. There are two kinds of judgments. One is called the Bema judgment seat, and the other one is what I mentioned to you, the great white throne judgment. Listen well. If you have genuinely accepted, genuinely, and this is very important, if you have genuinely accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, listen, you will not go through the great white throne judgment. So where do I go through? You go through the Bema judgment seat. Now, what's the Bema judgment seat? Listen well. The Bema judgment seat is not a judgment that will determine whether you will go to heaven or to hell. All right? The Bema judgment seat, listen well. If you are a genuine child of God, the Bema judgment seat guarantees that you will go to heaven. So here's the question. 
If it guarantees I go to heaven, why then do I still have to go through the Bema judgment seat? Because the Bema judgment seat is a judgment seat for rewards. Say this with me. Judgment seat. Say it out loud. I want you to remember it. Judgment seat for rewards. All right? So God will judge us, not because we're going to go to heaven or to hell. No, we're all going, go, we're all going to go to heaven if we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. That's a guarantee. But here's what is not guaranteed, the rewards. So let me ask you this question. When Christ comes, do you think God has enough rewards for you? That's a big question. Have you been faithful to God? Have you been faithful in your dealings with Him? Have you been devoted to Him? That will determine your rewards. Now, here's the thing. Who then goes through the great white throne judgment? Everyone who has rejected Christ. They will go through the great white throne judgment, and this is what some people don't realize. Even the unbelievers will have their own resurrection. You mean to say, Brother Mel, they will rise from the graves? Yes! It's not only the believers who will rise from the grave. Even unbelievers will rise from the grave. They will have resurrected bodies, but those resurrected bodies will be thrown into the lake of fire. One lady, when somebody was talking, when a preacher was talking about hell one time, and this preacher was coming on really strong, but this old lady was, was mocking the preacher when he, when he said, when the preacher said, in hell there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what the preacher said. And so this old lady mocked him and said, ha, that's no problem with me. I don't have teeth. And the preacher was equal to the situation, and he said, Madam, teeth shall be provided. <laughs> That's true, because their bodies will be resurrected. So this is talking about the great white throne judgment. We cannot take, not only can we not take our riches to the next life, we will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so that's what it means when, when the Bible says it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. So if you are rich and you want to stay spiritually rich, you have to understand and apply the principles of the kingdom. First of all, and I'd like to share to you four. Number one, you need to recognize that you are only a steward. I think Sister Mathel gave a very wonderful exhortation right at the beginning of our praise and worship when she began to talk about redemption. And sometimes this is what we do not understand, that we have been bought, we have been bought by the Lord back into a relationship with Him. Why? Because we were slaves to sin, we were slaves to Satan. 
And if we wanted freedom, the only way we could procure freedom is for a purchaser, for a redeemer kinsman to redeem us. And that is exactly what Christ did. He bought us back to Himself. And what was the ransom price? The ransom price was the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. That blood is the one that bought us back into God's kingdom. That is the ransom price that made us sons and daughters of God. Now, here's the question. Why is that so important? It is so important because if we have been redeemed, if Christ has accomplished redemption for us, it means only one thing. If He bought us, we no longer belong to ourselves. But rather, all of us, without exception, belong to God. Amen? And how do you know you've surrendered your life to Christ? Here's how you know. When you declare before God that everything I am and everything I have belongs to you. That's how you know you have genuinely accepted Christ. If there is anything at all that you you have withheld from God, no matter how small that is, let me tell you, He's not your Savior. He's not your Lord. Because if He is your Savior and if He is your Lord, everything goes to Him. Every fiber of your being is dedicated to Him. All your resources belong to Him. There is not a single thing that you actually own. You don't own your life. You don't own anything. God owns everything. So what does a steward mean? It means you're simply a manager. You're not the owner. He's the owner. So as a steward, I am only supposed to manage the things that God has given to me, which tells me one other thing. I have to be faithful in my giving. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the believers, the Old Testament saints gave 10%, actually more than 10% of whatever they received from God. When it came to their harvest, when it came to their resources, they always gave 10% of that. And by the way, it was not just the believers in the Old Testament that practiced it. It was actually a traditional practice in pagan religions. Think about that. Even the pagan religions actually practiced tithing. So here's the question that we need to ask. Should we still give in the New Testament? Some people say that because we are no longer Old Testament people and we are now in the New Testament, we should no longer tithe. And they would say what we should do is is we should be giving out of grace. And you know what? I'm not going to argue against that. We should, in fact, give out of grace. But here's how I understand grace giving. I understand grace giving as not giving less than the people in the Old Testament, but giving more than the people in the Old Testament. And why do I say that? I say that because now we have the full revelation of Christ. That's why if you go to the book of Hebrews, there is a word that always appears there, the word better or greater. What does that mean? The New Testament, in the New Testament, we have a better covenant. We have a better priest. 
We have a greater priest. We have a greater covenant. And that being the case, what does Jesus Christ say? To whom much is given, much is required. So my understanding of grace giving in the New Testament is we don't give less than our brothers in the Old Testament. We give more. That's why I say we should always be giving at least 11% of whatever we receive from God. Let me share to you a little example and testimony, and I do not mean to boast, and I do not want you to misunderstand. I do not get paid in this church. Sunday after Sunday, you see me here preaching. I also do the teaching as well as others in our IBI. I do not receive payment for that. Everything that I do is actually for free. So I don't have a salary. And this has been ongoing for 30, about 33 long years. Well, let me tell you this. God has graciously provided for me. I give 30% or more than 30% of whatever I receive from God. And friends, do I look malnourished? I look like I lost a lot of hair. That's true. But I don't think I look malnourished. My wife doesn't look malnourished. What does that mean? God has provided for us. And the question is, how could I do that? And this is a question that boggles a lot of people. You know, most especially when I talk to my American friends who are in the pastorate, this is really alien to them. Because in the United States, you, you cannot be a minister of God unless you have a salary. That's the same thing in the United Kingdom. And of course, the, the context here in the Philippines is, is vastly different from that of the United States and that of the United Kingdom, but it is truly mind-boggling for them that a minister can serve in the Philippines without a salary. But that's how it has been in my case. And the question is, why do I do it? And here's the thing. It's because Jesus is Lord of my life. It is because Jesus owns everything. I don't own my life. I don't own my money. And sometimes, here's what we fail to understand. We fail to understand that God owns us and God owns every single dime and every single penny that you and I have. And the question is, are we giving to God what is due to Him? Is He really the Lord of our lives? That's the big question here. Because if He is really the Lord of our lives, then we will not hesitate at all to give what is due to the Lord. Now think about this. How many days are there in a week? Seven. How many days in a week are we required to gather together and worship the Lord? Can I hear that, please? How many days? Just one. Yet how many times do we conveniently skip Sunday worship to do something else and we think it's perfectly all right because God, after all, is a gracious and generous God and sometimes we reason out, well, anyway, there's live streaming. I can watch the delayed telecast later on. And friends, let me ask you this question. Is that right? I mean, live streaming is for people who are abroad, people who are outside of Cebu, people who are sick. That's why we do live streaming. We don't do live streaming so that you can eat your popcorn at home 
and, and watch live streaming while you're also having another TV watching the NBA championship. All right? So here's the thing. How many of us dedicate that one day, that one day in a week for Jesus? It's a question. It's an issue of lordship. Now, let's talk about money. How much money do we retain? If God is asking us, let's just talk about 10%. If God is asking us 10% of our income, how much do we retain? Use your math. How much do we retain? If we give 10 to God, how much do we retain? 90. Think about that, how generous, how gracious God is. He owns everything, every blessing that comes our way, every resource that comes our way is as a result of His goodness. And yet, here's the thing, we even withhold what is due to God. We withhold that 10% from Him. So here's my question, is He really the Lord of your life? Is Jesus really the king of your life? Do you really honestly and sincerely say that he is the king of your life? Because if he is really king of your life, if he is really Lord of your life, then you will not hesitate at all to give to him what is due to him. In fact, it would be a joy and a privilege on your part to give him more than what is due to him. Why? Because you love Him. Because He redeemed you. He purchased you. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. So it is an issue of lordship. It's also an issue of faith. Do you trust God enough that He will provide for you? Doesn't He promise in Philippians 4, 19 that I that our God will supply all our needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God shall supply what? Some, all of your needs. Doesn't the Bible say in Matthew 6, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and what? And all these things shall be added unto you. So two questions I have for you. Number one, is Jesus really the Lord of your life? And the second question I have for you is, do you really trust Him? Because if you can't trust Him, listen well, if you can't trust Him with money, how can you trust Him for the next life? Amen? Does, it, does this make sense? If you can't trust God for money now, how can you trust God for the next life? How can you trust Him that there is really heaven? How can you trust Him that your names are written in the book of life? How can you trust Him that when you get to be in heaven and He says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, that you will receive your reward? If you can't trust Him now, how is it that you can trust Him for the next life? Amen? Everybody silent. Silent night. 
holy night. Third, be righteous in your business dealings. I know of some people who use their supposedly company representation expenses for themselves, and yet they charge it to their company. Those representation expenses are given to you so that you might spend it on your clients and on your customers. Yet how many times do we try to manipulate the accounting of that and try to make it appear that we're spending it for the company when in truth we're really spending it for ourselves? Do you think God is not watching? Do you think God does not know what you are doing? He knows. When you and I cheat, when you and I do not do things uprightly and righteously, God knows. And so we need to be righteous in our business dealings. Here's another thing. We need to be fair and just to those who are under us. Let's talk about something very basic. How many here have helpers in your home? Raise your hands. All right, I'm not going to ask you one by one. All right? Let me ask you this question. When the 15th, how, how, I mean, when do you pay your, your maids? Do you pay them on the 15th or on the 30th? Let's just say you pay them on the 15th and the 30th. When the 15th comes, do you give them what is due to them on the 15th? When the 30th comes, do you give them the money on the 30th? You know, we've had maids over the years, but right now, my wife's doing everything. But one thing we know with our maids is they always send back money to their families. So it's not just them. Their families are relying on them. And so if we withhold the 15th that they are expecting, that also delays their sending money to their own families. When you delay giving money, it delays the needs of those people. So my question is, don't we have the heart? Don't we have the compassion to do exactly what is right? Or are we simply thinking about ourselves? Friends, let me just tell you this. Money should be the least of our problems. You know why? Remember that verse in the book of Hebrews which says, He will never leave us nor forsake us? How many remember that? Raise your hands, please. All right. Do you know that that verse is specific, the specific context by which that verse uh, that by which that verse relates to, it, it relates to money. So what God is saying there, when it comes to money, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? God will never ever abandon His people. He will always provide for their needs. In fact, let me just tell you this. In the twinkling of an eye, God can just surprise you and bless you. 
I've had so many stories of people. I recall this businessman, he was telling me, you know what, Pastor Mel, when I started out, I just had a very little capital. And now, the kind of businesses or the kind of money that he is dealing with goes by the millions. And he told me this, a lot of people fail to realize that when you tithe, you can never outgive God. I know of another story of, of one brother of ours. I mean, he, he was, I think, he started out as an ordinary medical representative. That, that's how he started. But right now, he's, he's working as a chief executive officer. And then he tells me the same story. He said, Pastor Mel, people do not know what they are missing when they fail to give their tithe. Let me tell you another story. This guy went into, he studied law at an advanced stage. I think he studied law when he was in his late 40s or in his early 50s. So he became a lawyer at the age of 50. Yet the interesting thing is right now, he has been hired as an estate planner by many Taipans in Metro Manila. And not only that, he even wrote a book which became a bestseller. I won't mention the name. But one of the things I know about this brother is that he has been a faithful giver to the Lord. So that's one thing we need to trust God on. As I mentioned to you, in the twinkling of an eye, God can just bless us. Let me tell you a little story. Troubles began piling up for a Midwest couple. First, they lost their jobs. Then, the septic tank in their backyard caved in. This new problem reflected the way things were going for them right down the drain. When the husband began digging around the tank, though, the story changed. His shovel uncovered a gold coin, and eagerly, he started digging with his hands, and to his astonishment, he found 75 pure gold coins. Suddenly, the couple's misfortune had become a fortune. For they now owned a coin collection worth from $200,000 to $1.5 million. You know what else they discovered? This was actually a cachet of some rich prospectors in the 1849 gold rush era. So think about this. This was gold in 1849 that was uncovered sometime, you know, uh, in the 20th or 21st century. So praise God. In the twinkling of an eye, God can just bless you. So maybe you can, you can search your septic tanks. I don't know. God has strange ways of blessing people. But you know what? It's never a problem with God. So, let me just ask you this question. If you are going to be rich, what kind of rich do you want to be? Do you want to be rich, rich? 
Or do you want to be poor rich? Or worse, do you want to become poor poor? So friends, is this relevant? Yes, it is. It is for us. If you have more than what you need, the Bible is talking to you. And I pray you will be faithful to God because after all, Christ has redeemed us. We don't own anything. He owns us. He owns everything we have. To Him be the glory and the praise. Amen. So can we just pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and bless You for this wonderful time You've given us, O oh God. Thank You for Your Word, and thank You for instructing us. Lord, do not allow us to be like this sinful rich who were living only for wanton pleasure, who were oppressing even those who were righteous and who were withholding the pay of their labors. May we be honest in our dealings. May we be faithful in our tithes or in our grace giving. May we truly acknowledge you as the Lord and the King and the Savior of our lives. And Lord, we trust that we will be shining lights in this world that many more might come to Christ and many more might glorify the Heavenly Father. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please.